as you know, we've been going through this series on becoming his church. And, you know, the last section of the book of Acts is, and we've really kind of already transitioned partly there, and it's going to continue, where it's not, it's so much about obedience, but it's obedience that is connected to suffering. And I think it's important that as Christians we understand that. You know, when I was talking about the false gospels, okay, when I was talking about the partway gospels, a lot of the partway gospels are the gospels that, that want to leave suffering out. And some of the partway gospels um, only want to say, you know, Jesus suffered so you don't have to suffer. That's not what scripture tells us. And sometimes like we, we get the generalization of, yes, there's sufferings that come in life. You know, there's tragedies we face, failures, challenges that we face. And really what suffering is in scripture is, is you know, God helping us through those hard times in life. God does want to be there and help you through the hard times in life. But that's leaving out what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. What's being left out often is that sometimes, as a matter of fact, I think it's more than we would want to know, that suffering is part of God's plan. It's not a bad thing that happens to me. It's part of God's plan. And the more you grow in your faith, the more you understand, the more you will see that if I'm truly going to be not just obedient to Christ, but want Christ to be more and more evident in my life, evident in my life it will inevitably lead to suffering. And again, this is not, this is not the, the gospel people want to hear. They want the gospel of Jesus is there to keep me from suffering. Jesus is there to bubble wrap me up in my life so I can enjoy my life and never face any struggles, face any problems. And it's only people who God doesn't like who have to suffer or it's people like special people, like maybe a guy like Paul. Let's look at what the text says. Acts 21, verses 1 through 16. It says this, And we, when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we, we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, 
but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. This is Paul finishing up this third missionary journey. And as we've been talking about the last couple weeks, he knows the Spirit is telling him, you're going to go to Jerusalem, and then you're going to go to Rome. That's where um, he knows his life is, is destined. He doesn't know a lot else. Um, he's, he's planning, he's doing all that he needs to do, but there's not a lot of details here. And so Luke is kind of telling us this story, and he's, he's describing it in a way to talk about how, you know, they're traveling down the coast from city to city, and then they're looking for like a, a more seaworthy vessel, a bigger vessel to go all the way to Phoenicia and then to Tyre. And I think, you know, one of the things that is, is really interesting, the way that, that um, Luke tells this story is that Paul is given many opportunities, so many opportunities to say, maybe going to Jerusalem is not such a great idea. Every city he goes to, the Christians love him. It would be so tempting, so easy to stay. So many opportunities that that trip across the sea. It's five days, five days on the open ocean, open sea. He has time to think. We don't really get any record that he has a garden of Gethsemane moment where like Jesus is praying, you know, if this cup, Father, if this cup pass from me. We don't get any of that. But you got to think, Paul is, is, is having ample opportunity. He goes to Tyre, and he, and he doesn't know anyone there. The text seems to indicate he just knows there are Christians there, and the Christians were probably those that were established when the, the Christians from Jerusalem first fled um, Jerusalem under persecution. But he connects with him there and he stays a week. But we see what we saw before at Ephesus. These are the people who don't know him that well, but they know his reputation. They know what he's done for the church. And they know Jerusalem. The people at Ephesus probably don't know as much. They know. And their advice is the same don't go, Paul. Don't go. And I'm sure people laid out presentations. And I'm sure if they had this back then, somebody might have even made a PowerPoint presentation. Pros and cons of going to Jerusalem. Why you shouldn't go, why you should stay. And I don't think the people were driven by fear, they were driven by love. They were driven by, Paul, why would you go somewhere where you're almost certainly gonna be in prison, even killed, when there's so much work to do, there's so much more you could do for the cause of Christ if you went in the opposite direction. Then he leaves there and, and we get this scene that the way Luke tells this, you know, he tells this scene that after just seven days when Paul's about to leave, not just the elders that he probably spent a lot of time with, but their entire families coming. You know how like, powerful that must have been to Paul? Powerful pull to stay right there, to invest in these people a little bit longer, a little bit longer. Such love expressed, such love formed in such a short amount of time. But he says, I need to be obedient. 
He gets on the ship. And then we get down here in, in Caesarea. He's getting close. He's getting close to Jerusalem. He's kind of right now beginning to follow the same path Jesus took on his final trip to Jerusalem. Think about this. If 2,000 years later we can look at the book of Acts and see that Luke is telling the story in such a way that Paul's journey to Jerusalem is paralleling Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, if we can see it 2,000 years later, Paul knew it. Paul knew when Jesus, as the gospel tells us, set his face toward Jerusalem and went to Jerusalem, that he knew that he was about to face the, you know, what we call the Passion, the Passion Week. He knew what he was going to face. And this isn't lost on Paul. Paul doesn't have a death wish. Paul just wants to be obedient. Obedient to God. And you might think like, you know, why these stories at least three times and probably more that Luke doesn't tell us that he's going to these churches and these churches are trying to convince him not to go and in this last one is particularly um, really like important and different because Agabus the prophet says, this is what's gonna happen to you. Before it was like, Paul, don't go, it's dangerous. Um, that's not the place, you know, that's where you know, the, the religious leaders are gonna be after you and other people are gonna make plots against you. Don't go, don't go. But Agabus says specifically, this is what'll happen. So specifically, you will be bound. And the, of all that's happening here, to me, one of the things that just kind of stands out is in verse 12. In verse 12, it says, when we heard this. See, this is what's happening. Paul's not traveling by himself. He's traveling with his, his missionary team, his companions. These are the faithful people. These are, are the guys that are going out there and, and going to you know, dangerous places, new places, helping to start churches. Paul's using them to go help churches that are in trouble. All these things are happening. These are like, that's the next generation of Paul's that Paul has been pouring into. And up until this moment, they're like, all right, Paul, let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go to Jerusalem. But as soon as they hear Agabus, as soon as they see what's going to happen to Jesus, they're like, Wait a minute. Wait, that's not how we thought it was going to turn out. We thought we were going to go to Jerusalem and then God would do this incredible victory and everything would be awesome. And then after conquering Jerusalem for Jesus, off to Rome. I don't know what they had in their minds because Paul had been very clear he, he never had this, this kind of modern Christian understanding that if I do God's will, he's obligated to protect me. He's obligated to provide for me if I do God's will. I won't face hardships if I do God's will. If I can be perfectly, faithfully obedient, I will not only do God's will, my life will never have any problems. Paul's not like that. Paul knew. Paul knew not just the reality of suffering, he knew the potentiality of suffering. And it didn't matter to him. But his closest companions, the ones he had poured his life into, they're kind of responding the way Jesus' closest companions did when he said, I'm going to die. I'm going to be martyred. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be crucified. This is what's happening. I am leaving. And his closest followers are like, no way. In fact, Peter tries to stop him. 
there, when we heard this, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Again, what are his missionary companions, what had they been thinking up until this moment? How did they think this was gonna play out? And now they get this prophecy which they believe and they know. This isn't going the way we thought it would go. And Paul, he answers, and you know, one of the reasons I like to do study is to find little nuggets like this once in a while where when Paul says, um, what are you doing? Weeping, and it's translated breaking my heart. That word breaking is the same verb that was used to do laundry. So don't think like, oh, they just threw it in the machine? No, how did they do laundry back then? You know, they would, they would you know, get the clothes wet and then they would beat them with a rock. And he's saying, that's what it feels like. Every time from Ephesus to Tyre, here, every time it feels like people are, are beating on my heart. They're beating on it. And it tells us that Paul is not like, you know, robot. I must do what God commands, right? That's not Paul. Paul is feeling and experiencing every emotion. He's being drawn and pulled by this. It's real. And he's like, why are you doing this? And I don't know that Paul got this. Maybe he did eventually. But I asked the same question, Luke, why are you telling us this? Luke, why would God just take, you know, Paul through all of this, all, you know how that emotionally stressful and straining and tiring this would be to keep saying goodbye to people and then get to a place where you don't even know the people and in a week you love them so much and you gotta say goodbye to them. And all the while knowing you're going to face suffering. Why? And I don't know 100% for sure but this is what I think. What I think is the reason Luke is telling us this story and that this was something not just for us today but for Paul then is to say, Paul, you know all of that, that deep love that you had with those Ephesian Christians? that you spent more than three years with, and you know that deep love that formed so quickly between you and the people at Tyre? You know this deep love that your missionary team has? That's being expressed in a way that they, that's all they can do is express it in, Paul, we love you so much, we don't wanna lose you. That love, that love is evidence and assurance to you that I have done through you what I promised to do. That, that Paul, even if you're to die in a week, in a day, my church will go on and the evidence is this incredibly powerful pull of love that I've given to you given to these people and it's being poured out. It is this assurance, it is this evidence. Think about how much more difficult it would have been for Paul to go face all the suffering he's about to face if he thinks that, that the rest of the Christians are so fragile that without him they're gonna fall apart. Or they're all like the Corinthians, full of pride and at war with one another how much more difficult it would be. 
But he can go because he knows. He's seen it. They've, I sometimes ask, you know, myself this question. When I see those early Christians, first two, three centuries, and I think about how much they suffered, but not just how much they suffered, how much they were willing to suffer. And I think, like, why? What is different about them and us who think that sometimes the gospel is all about avoiding any kind of struggles in life? What is the difference? I don't know all the difference, but I think one of the differences is this, is that they not only knew the word, like we know the word, they didn't only know the words of the gospel about having faith in Jesus Christ and about you know, repentance and, and inviting Christ to be Savior and Lord. They, didn't, they not only knew all that, they had experienced in a very powerful and real way, which we see displayed here, that supernatural love that only comes from God. They knew the gospel was true because they could see the effects of the gospel in their lives and in their church. That's why. And when you have that kind of evidence, you don't just have the biblical evidence, you don't just have all the apologetics and all of the theology and all the reasoning, which is very important, by the way, but you have the, the key evidence, the reality. I am not who I was. And I am in community, part of a family full of people who are not who they were. We're different. We've changed. We're transformed. We love each other in a way that we could not before. And I know, I know this is stuff I don't want to hear because I'm really not good at it. I mean, if it's just left up to me what I want to do, it's not going to be doing, trying to build relationships. That's for other people to do. It's not about building relationships with people I have nothing in common with. That's weird and awkward. It's not in trying to get along with people who are really hard to get along with. Someone else needs to do that. I know I'm not good at this. Which is why it's just, it still amazes me when there are these moments when I realized, like, wow, that's not me, and yet I did it. I don't know why. That's not me, and yet that's what I'm thinking. That's what my, my attitude towards that person is, my feeling towards that person. It's not me. If it was me, I would have pushed them out of my life a long time ago. I would have avoided them as best I could. But when that's replaced with this deep love for one another, it's the evidence. It's the evidence. And so when we think about this, I always try to think about, you know, where are we in 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 either in the world or in the church. And sometimes it's what is the misconception that leads us to where we are. And I've already talked about it, but it's that many Christians believe that faithfulness guarantees God's protection. And it doesn't. Faithfulness doesn't guarantee God's protection. Faithfulness doesn't guarantee God's provision. Wait, 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 wait. I thought Jesus promised to provide all our needs. 
No. You need to study your scripture a little more deeply. When Jesus talks about that in the book of Matthew, he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things will be added unto you. We're like, add them, God, and then after you add them, I'll start seeking. It's not what the scripture says. There's this conditional of faithfulness. God, I'll follow you as long as you promise to protect me. There's that very beautiful song, The Prayer. And it's a beautiful song, but it's really bad theology. Because the prayer ultimately is that God will keep us safe. If you became a Christian, not to be saved, but to be safe, you're missing the point of Christianity. One of Cheryl's friends was like, was all like, oh, right, you're gonna go to Florida, you're gonna do all this, that's great. And then she found out like a couple of days ago, you know, Matt's not going with you? You're going there by yourself? What are you, crazy? I, I want my wife to be safe. It's my desire. But if she's gonna go there to serve God, I want her to be used by God, even if it's not safe. But in, in some reason, in the American version of Christianity, we send missionary teams and we pray more for their protection than we do that God would use them. And we somehow think if something happened to a missionary or a mission team, if something happened to them, we somehow think that they must have done something wrong. God must not have protected them. God didn't do his job or they were out of God's will. It's not necessarily true. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes Christians do really stupid, dangerous things for no good reason. They don't prepare. They're not praying. They're just out there being bold without any sense of God's purpose. But there's other times it's exactly doing, they're doing exactly what God wants them to do. And it leads to suffering. When we look at this text and we understand this big story that Paul is, is relentlessly, willingly going to the place where he's now been told he's going to be imprisoned. When we see that, we, we get like this picture of what real faithful obedience looks like. Paul's not covering up his ears and, you know, I don't want to hear it. No, he's willing to hear it. He's not trying to avoid people. He's there. But he's going to be relentless. When we look closer at this text, you know, there's a couple of things that come out that some of it's related to the same idea of faithful obedience and suffering, and some of it is just what we see in the text. And it really helps us understand what, what Christian love is that l Christians have for each other. And the first point, you know, we've seen, we see it in verse four, and then we see it again down in verse 12. The people clearly disagree with Paul. They clearly disagree with Paul. In fact, in the first instance, it says, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul. But what I love about this, we see it in verse six when they say farewell. We see it down um, in verse uh, 14 when, he, when the, when the people at Caesarea and, the, and his mission team say, 
let the will of the Lord be done, what we see is that when his church, when, when his church is really empowered by God's love, that we can disagree about the plans and still walk together. We can disagree about the plans. They're disagreeing over exactly what the Spirit is telling them. They're disagreeing about what is best, not just for Paul, but what is best for the entire church, for God's mission. There is serious disagreement about it. But they still are united. They still walk together. One of the sad things that COVID revealed, and thankfully not really in in our church that I know of, maybe somebody can tell me of situations, but I really don't didn't really see it in our church, but I've heard about other churches, that COVID revealed disagreements about how to deal with COVID that led to division in the church. Everybody had arguments, everybody thought they were following God's word and they were trying to do what you know the gospel would have them do and what you know God's spirit and love would have them do and and there was disagreement what's going on here is they're not disagreeing over doctrine and if we're talking about essential doctrine who Jesus is who God is what salvation is, all right, we're going to disagree, and if necessary, we're going to divide. We're going to disagree about the word of God being God's true, inerrant, inspired word. We're going to disagree about that. We're going to divide. But what's going on here is disagreeing about the plans, the application, the interpretation And even when, you know, I, I, I don't know much about Agabus, I just know him here, but even when Agabus gives the vision, he says, you know, he ties his hands and he says, the owner of this belt is going to be tied like this, bound like this. You notice Agabus doesn't say anything else. Luke doesn't have him say anything else. Agabus doesn't say like, this is what's going to happen so Paul, you shouldn't go. No, it's everybody else who says, Paul, you shouldn't go. They saw the vision. They disagreed about what to do. They voiced their disagreement. They didn't just say, I disagree, I feel the Spirit is telling me this, but it goes against what Paul is saying, so I'm not going to say it. No, they disagreed, they talked about it. They might have even had very heated arguments about it. But ultimately, they walked together. And I think Luke is showing us this because, again, he's showing us the strength of God's love in uniting the church. It's evidence of, of what happens when, when God's love really transforms us. And we can look at this example and we know that the same gospel, the same word, the same Jesus, the same spirit is available to us. When I think about, you know, what is, what is the kind of action point here? Because, you know, we see this and, and we could always just say, well, let's just try to love better. But there's something else going on here. They're not just dealing with the moment. They're not just saying, let's be in this moment. But they're looking towards the future. And I think an action point we can gain from this, a challenge for us, is that if we're not already doing this, but that, that we would be praying 
and thinking and talking about what we believe God is doing in our lives and in our church. But not just what is he doing right now, but what is he going to do next? One of the traps churches get in is they just live in the now. The now is important. It's very important because we're going through stuff. We are experiencing this life right now. The now matters. But what's next? In our own spiritual lives as Christians, you know, it, it, it matters what's going on. We need to be present in what's going on, experiencing what's going on, but we should be also be thinking about what's next. I love that so many of you have like, you know, started coming Monday nights to what John's doing. Because that tells me that there's a significant number of these people in this church are saying, I just don't want to keep doing the same thing. What's next, God? What's next? I love when people ask me questions or when they want to like find a, a like be able to study more, understand more. They're asking what's next. When people say, I ha- you know, how else can I serve? What ministries do you have? What's next? If we pray about it, if we think about it, if we talk about it, we might disagree. We might disagree. But if we're doing this out of love for God and not for our own agendas or for our own like, you know, personal feeling of success or influence, we can disagree and we can still walk together. This church walks together even when we disagree about the plans, but my action point is this. Too many churches and too many Christians fail to plan. They're not thinking ahead, so they never disagree. Because we're just showing up. We're just doing what we do. What is next? I want to challenge you to pray. Well, how is God going to be using you more in the coming months? How is he going to prepare you to do that? How is he going to use our church? How is he going to prepare us? What are things we need to, to make stronger in our church that are already here? What are things we need to add? What are things we need to get rid of? Let's pray. Let's talk about it. The second thing we see so much from, from Paul and, but Paul is being used as this example, and it's been throughout this section, we're gonna keep coming back to this point, is that if we're going to be his church, we need to know that that means willing to follow God no matter the cost, or even if we understand. Those of you who missed Adam Mabry, he had a lot of very good things to say, and, and one of the things he, he said, he actually stole it from someone else, but he said um, something to the effect of somebody was asking like, why did this happen in my life? Why, you know, why won't God explain why this tragedy happened in my life? Why am I going through this? And that somewhere in that searching, he sensed this kind of God telling him, if I explain to you why, it will take the rest of your life for you to understand. It's it's really taking to heart the things we say that we don't always really mean when we say, God's ways are higher than mine. God's, God's infinite. God's got so much more going on than, you know, and his plans are so intricate. We say all that until tragedy hits right in our lives or we're facing suffering, we're facing a problem, and then it's suddenly like, God, I need to know, I need to understand. 
And in fact, some people will say, if I can't understand, then I'm just, I just don't really think God exists. It's not always about us being able to understand. Paul doesn't know God's plan. By the way, Paul was in Europe. If he wanted to go to Rome, he could have gone straight to Rome. He's going the long way. Opposite direction is always longer. He doesn't know God's plan. He just knows he's got to go to Jerusalem. Then he's going to go to Rome. I have a feeling if Paul knew the plan, he would say, okay, guys, this is what's going to happen. Agabus was right. I'm going to be bound. And then I'm going to spend two years right back here in Caesarea, in prison. Not really in prison. I'll probably be under house arrest, so it'll be all right. You guys can come visit me. We can keep talking. We can minister. And then after that, God told me two years later, I'm going to go to Rome. And when I get to Rome, I'm going to be under house arrest there too. But you know what? I'm going to get an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to every Roman soldier who is in the personal bodyguard of the emperor. And you know what else? I'm going to have a, be able to stand in the court of the emperor and, and, and express the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, I'm going to be let go. And I'm going to go on another missionary journey. He'll do a lot of other awesome things. If he had told them all that now, if he knew all that and he told them, they would have been like, oh, okay, Woo. good thing. Paul doesn't know. He doesn't know what's coming. He just knows. Be faithful. I will be faithful in what I know. And what I know is God said, go to Jerusalem. That's what I know. I'm going to do it. He knows part of the cost. He accepts that perhaps he's going to have to pay the ultimate cost. But he doesn't know it all. His companions were struggling with this. They were struggling with this. They didn't, they didn't really get it. They didn't, you know, they thought somehow this was going to go a different way. We need to be more like Paul here. The action is simply this. Be faithful in what we know. Be faithful in what we know. Be faithful in what we know so, so that we will be faithful in whatever lies ahead. Here's what we know. Here's what we know. And in case you missed it, I don't think John and I have been that subtle. But in case we have been too subtle... Maybe we should have t-shirts printed up, okay? I'm not sure. But in case you don't know, what do we know for sure we should be doing as a church? We should be making disciples, we should be being discipled, and we should be discipling others. We know that for sure. Do that. And that's why I love so many of you are getting this message because what is John doing? What is he doing on Monday night? He's helping some of you be discipled, but he's helping some of you get ready to disciple others. I love that. If you come to a Bible study just to get fed, just what's in it for you, you're not doing this. You're only doing one part of kind of being discipled. But we are to be discipled so that we can disciple others. It doesn't end with you. It doesn't end with me. That's God's plan. If you got a problem with his plan, talk to God about it. It's his plan, not my plan. I wouldn't have trusted me with that plan. I'd be like, God, really? You want to start with me and then spread it out? You got better people. You can do it better yourself. Be faithful in what we know, and this is what we know. This is what we know. We know that we should be loving one another, being the community of faith. We know this. We don't have to say, God, what is your will? That's your will. Be a disciple. Love one another. 
Oh, there's more things. But if we just did those two things, I'm not sure we would have time to say, God, you know, what other big things do you have? Be faithful in what we know so that we can be faithful in whatever lies ahead. And finally, talked about this before, I don't want to go over it too much more, but as we've talked about, this is an incredible like, account of this deep love that these Christians have for one another. If we're going to be his church, we have to be a church who is growing more deeply in our love for God, but also in our love for one another. Nobody here is speaking out of disobedience. Nobody here is speaking out of selfishness or pride. These people who are, who are kind of disagreeing with Paul, they're doing it out of an abundance of love. And, and as well-meaning as they are and as important as it is for this to happen, in a way, it's actually contributing to Paul's suffering because he's, as he's reminded more and more and the love that, that they have for him is expressed more and more, it makes it more and more difficult for him to leave. But he does. And what can we do with this? Again, it's not a new thing. We've seen this multiple times through the book of Acts. What can we do with it as a church? And I like that I'm also hearing this from people in the church, by the way. But the action is this. Be intentional. Be intentional about developing relationships in the church that show the love of God in our lives. Relationships that show the love of God in our lives doesn't mean everybody's gonna be your best buddy. That's not what it means. It means that I am intentionally developing relationships with people whereby I can express God's love to them and they can express God's love to me. It's gonna look different. It's not gonna look the same. It's not all gonna happen in the same place or at the same time. But the thing is that we need to be intentional. And as soon as I say that, there's part of me that goes, I don't want to do that. Because what if I try to be intentional to develop a relationship with somebody and they don't want to have a relationship with me? Or what if, worse, they actually do want to have a relationship with me and now i got to spend more time with them. i got to listen to their problems. What are you doing, God? Yeah, I got all that in my head too. But I also have Jesus Christ in my life who says, get over yourself. You're not such a prize yourself. Who really wants to be a good friend to you? You can be kind of a jerk. You can be kind of non-emotional. You can be a lot of things. If I can get over myself, you can get over yourself. Get over yourself. Get over yourself so that God's love can abound in this place, but we have to be intentional. We have to be willing to be vulnerable. We have to be willing to sometimes get hurt and get into just like awkward situations. Be intentional that we would develop relationships in the church that show the love of God in our lives. You know, if I were to do that, and if I were to be intentional, and the person is just like not receptive, they're not ready, and if I'm doing it for the right reasons, my feelings aren't gonna be hurt. If I'm doing it for the right reasons, I'm just gonna say, God, they're not, they're not ready, or I'm not the one. So who's next? Who's next? Be intentional. I love that Luke is telling this story and I love that he includes it here because it's, there's so much in it. There's disagreement, there's tears, there's sorrow. I'm sure there was anger. How dare you, Paul? How dare you leave us? 
Paul didn't believe God owed him a happy ending. He didn't believe God owed him a happy retirement. Paul said, no, I will be faithful and I will be obedient. If it leads to retirement, awesome. If it leads back to Ephesus, awesome. If it leads to Syrian Antioch, great. But I am first and foremost going to be obedient. I went to my class reunion and um, it's the 40th, by the way. I, I graduated when I was 10. Um, but it was the, my 40th reunion and, you know, more and more of my classmates, oh, I retired, I retired, I retired. And I'm like, the things I do, I love doing them. I never want to retire. Because so much of what I do is, it's not work. It's ministry. It's showing love to other people. I mean, sometimes you think like, oh, you know, I'd, maybe I'd like to be like everybody else and not have any responsibilities, not have a schedule, just be able to get up and decide what I'm going to do that day. No. I want to minister to my last breath. I want to teach and be taught until my last moment. I want to get better at loving other people every day of my life. God doesn't owe me a retirement. I don't deserve it. If I get it, great. If I don't, even greater to me. And as we you know, look at the example of Paul, all of this comes back to can we be faithfully obedient even when it leads to suffering? If you're not there yet, it's okay. You'll get there. Keep growing. Keep learning. Keep being discipled. But if you are, then be faithfully obedient.